0: That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com.
1: Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast.
2: Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And we are continuing our epic series about space and space travel, and I've covered the various spacecraft involved during the actual space race, from the Vostok to the Soyuz, from the Mercury to the Apollo, but I didn't really go into much detail about the launch vehicles, or what we would more casually refer to as the rockets. So today, we're going to talk about rockets, and the science behind them, and some of the ones that have been used to put stuff what was once on Earth out in space somewhere. And don't worry... I'm not going to cover every single rocket that ever was put to such use. That would sound like I was reading off a very weird phone book because it would involve not just all these odd names that we as Americans, we as in I'm saying myself here, the Americans created, but also all the different designations that have been made by various countries around the world. Lots of countries have made launch vehicles. So I'm just going to focus on some of the ones from the space race period because I think... uh, You know, it relates to the episodes I just did, mainly. And also it has a nice narrow focus. The history of rockets stretches far back before there was ever a space race or before there was a Soviet Union or before there was a United States of America. And of course, by that, I mean before there were those nations. Obviously, the land masses were there and there were people living on them. But you know what I mean? The origins of the rocket are closely tied to that of fireworks, and I've covered fireworks in previous episodes. Scholars have nailed down the emergence of rockets in Chinese alchemy sometime during the Song Dynasty. That stretched from 960 Common Era to 1279 Common Era. The former curator of rockets for the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, a guy named Frank Winter, attempted to narrow that down a bit. And his work suggested that during the 11th century, Chinese alchemists were trying to suss out a formula that would lead to eternal life. They were attempting to make practical use of the Chinese philosophy that all the universe is divided into passive and active forces. And uh, that mixing your yin and yang materials in a proper way would create various amazing results, such as, presumably, never dying. So they never landed on a mixture that would preserve life indefinitely, but some of the mixtures did up having uh, other interesting properties, like blowing up if you lit them. So they effectively invented an early form of gunpowder. By 1232, the Chinese were using rockets in warfare. They had a weapon that they called the fei Hyo seng Uh, And I know I'm mispronouncing that. I apologize. My Chinese is terrible. But it means flying fire lances. And if you listen to the fireworks episodes that we did on Tech Stuff years ago, you know there are various myths and legends about Chinese thinkers who tried to use rockets for flight and the various results of those experiments. So I'm not going to go into those here. Instead, we're just going to skip ahead a few centuries. In the 1590s in Germany, there was a fireworks maker named Johann Schmidlap who attempted to create fireworks that could reach much higher altitudes through a process called staging. Staging is where you divide up a rocket into two or more stages. And each stage contains its own propellant. So when the first stage burns out, it ignites a second stage, which in Schmidlap's case was a smaller rocket that was carried by a larger first stage rocket. So the first stage rocket ignites, launches, as it gets toward the end of its fuel, it ignites the fuel inside the second rocket, which then continues to launch and go even higher into the sky and deliver the payload way up in there, and you get a really impressive firework. While Schmidlap made a, pra- a practical multi-stage rocket— the idea had previously been theorized by an Austrian military engineer named Konrad Haas. Haas wrote a manuscript about his ideas that predated Schmidlapp's designs by a few decades, including multi-stage rockets. He even talked about the possibility of using liquid fuels as propellant, although that would take quite some time to come true. Now, whether Schmidlapp knew of Haas's work or not, I don't know. Maybe he did. It's possible that this was a case of two people coming up with essentially the same idea around the same time. That has happened before. Or it could be that Schmidlop had heard of Haas's ideas and that Schmidlop was the one who was able to make practical use of them. Either way, whether he came up with the idea or not, Schmidlop was the one who actually made it work. In 1687, Sir Isaac Newton published his work Principia, which included his three laws of motion. So we see that the practical understanding of rocketry preceded a more nuanced scientific understanding of what was going on by several centuries, which is often the case where we notice something, we observe something interesting, and we even make use of that something for some time, but we don't have a full understanding of what's really going on until much later. That has happened on numerous occasions throughout human history. So what are the three laws of motion and why are they important? Well, the first law is every object in a state of uniform motion tends to remain in that state of motion unless an external force is applied to it. We also call this the law of inertia. So, for example, if there is a rock sitting on a level section of ground, we would expect that rock to just sit there to remain in that position, to stay still, unless some external force, like someone's foot, were to come in and be applied to the rock. So if someone kicks the rock, then we would expect it to move. But we wouldn't expect the rock to move on its own. It wouldn't just spontaneously start rolling around. That would be in violation of the first law of motion. The second law of motion is that the relationship between an object's mass, its acceleration, and the applied force is force equals mass times acceleration. Acceleration and force are vectors, meaning they don't just have a magnitude, they also have a direction. So you have to describe them as having a direction while you're working with them. You can't just give, you know, just a a unit uh, and be accurate. And this law, uh, in this law, the direction of the force vector is the same as the direction of the acceleration vector. So you can't have an acceleration vector that's in opposite direction of the force vector. The equation lets us understand how velocities change when we apply different forces to the system. And a change in velocity is acceleration, right? Velocity itself is is speed and direction. So acceleration is when you change something about that. You either change the speed, so you make it speed up or you make it slow down, or you change the direction, which, you know, because velocity is a vector, and either one of those would be considered a a change in acceleration, or rather, it would be acceleration itself. And the third law of motion is, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So, You've probably heard this before, and I'm sure you have a decent understanding of it. But just in case, uh, here's a way of thinking about it. Imagine that you're standing on a platform that's suspended by ropes, right? Like, it's a square platform. There are four ropes, one at each corner. And there's a second platform on a column that's in front of you. But in order to get there, you're going to have to take a pretty big step. Not, Not a huge step, but a decent one. As you take that step, if there were another observer watching all this, they would notice that the platform you stand on would move the opposite direction of where you were stepping. This is that equal but opposite reaction. That's an exemplification of Newton's third law of motion. It's also ultimately what explains the phenomenon of a rocket flying into the air when it's blasting what appears to just be fire and smoke out of its business end. The rocket is actually throwing mass in one direction, in the form of very high-pressured gas. The rocket itself moves in the opposite direction because of this. If you were to sit in an office chair that has wheels on it, and then you had a medicine ball in your hands and you threw the medicine ball straight ahead of you, you and the chair would roll backward because of this principle. Rockets work the same way. It's just that the rocket is throwing up mass in the form of that high-pressure gas at an incredible rate. So. Remember that second law force is equal to mass times acceleration. That's also very important. The rocket has a lot of mass, particularly when it's full of fuel. You have the mass of the rocket's structure and you have the mass of all the fuel inside of it. When a rocket's engine, which is a reaction engine, uh, it's important to note because when we hear the word engine, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word engine, I'm usually thinking about a mechanical device that. Forms some form of, of rotational power, right? A rotational force, like a reciprocating gasoline engine. That's kind of what I think about. But a rocket engine is a reaction engine. Uh, rocket engines fling mass in that form of hot gas uh, at a very high rate of acceleration, and the combination creates a lot of force, right? So, well, however much mass it is times that acceleration, that equals the force. Well, the equal and opposite reaction means if you're Pushing that much mass downward at a very fast rate, then you're moving upward. Uh, and the speed at which you move is based upon how fast and how much stuff you're pushing down. Uh, that, that equation tells us all of this stuff. And we could actually figure out how much acceleration the rocket will experience if we know the mass and the acceleration of the hot gases coming out of its engine. The two sides of the equation have to balance out. It has to be equal and opposite, right? So rocket science is hard, but let's go back to that office chair and medicine ball example because that makes it way easier to understand. So practical example. Let's say I'm sitting in an office chair and I have a mass of about 68 kilograms. The chair has a mass of about 22 kilograms. So collectively, the chair and I are 90 kilograms, The medicine ball I have has a mass of 4.5 kilograms. So at the very beginning of this, I have a total mass of 94.5 kilograms because I'm holding the medicine ball, right? And then I also have a velocity of zero. I'm not moving. So I'm staying still. I've got this medicine ball in my hands. And then I throw the medicine ball straight out in front of me at 15 meters per second. That's about 33 and a half miles per hour. And that's probably way faster than I could actually throw a medicine ball, but forget that for now. How fast am I going to travel back in my chair? How fast will the chair roll backward in opposite direction from my throw? Well, to understand that, we take the velocity of the medicine ball times its mass. So we take that 15 meters per second times 4.5 kilograms, which gives us 67.5 newtons technically. That represents the force of the medicine ball flying away from me. There must be an equal and opposite reaction. So that means the product of my mass and velocity has to equal negative 67.5. It's equal and opposite of the original. Now it's negative because we're looking at velocity in the opposite direction of the medicine ball's flight. So it's It's from the perspective of Medicine Ball's flight being positive. Mine has to be negative. So it doesn't mean that I have some sort of weird negative unit of measurement. It instead is referring to it being a different direction, an opposite direction. So again, force is mass times acceleration. And we know what my mass is with the chair, right? It's 90 kilograms. And we know that the force is equal and opposite of the force that was in the medicine ball side of the equation. So we know it's the force is minus 67.5. So that means we have to divide both sides by my mass. We divide minus 67.5 by my mass of 90 kilograms, and we end up getting minus 0.75 meters per second. So that means I'm traveling backward in my chair at 0.75 meters per second initially before friction slows me down. Rocket science is exactly like that, only, of course, way more difficult. We'll get into why it gets way more difficult in just a second. But first, y'all, I need to take a quick break. I'm gonna thank my sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. With SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at Concur.com. That's c-o-n-c-u-r.com.
3: I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the General. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but...
1: Same old us. Oh, yeah.
3: and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: That's right. Right, right, right. But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had
2: died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's
3: called
4: survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught. A history of courage and perseverance.
2: I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it.
4: And it was a history full of love.
0: The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible.
4: And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcast, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The science of rocketry continued in large part because rockets could be effective weapons of war. In 1844, engineers discovered that by designing jet vents on an angle so they're not coming just straight out, a rocket would spin when it was ignited. And that spinning motion would actually create a stabilization in the rocket's flight path, kind of like a bullet experience when it emerges from a gun. It spins and that produces stability. Uh, The stability of spinning objects would become a very important component, not just in space travel, but in technology in general. It's you I've talked about that with gyroscopes. In 1898, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, who I talked about in the first episode of this whole series, proposed the possibility of space travel through rocketry. Moreover, he theorized that a liquid propellant would be a more suitable fuel source to provide the energy necessary to push a rocket into space, but had not quite worked out how that would actually happen. Tsiolkovsky worked out some really important details about the relationship between a rocket's mass and its speed, and what it would take to get a rocket into space. So let's take a few moments to understand the calculations that are necessary. Now, we've already covered the equal and opposite reaction. We understand that, that whatever we want the rocket to do is going to be based upon the amount of mass it's throwing out through its engine and how fast it's throwing that mass out. But now we have to consider some other complicating factors. First, A rocket's mass, when it's fully fueled, is different than the rocket's mass one second before all the fuel burns up. That mass is decreasing. Uh, Now, the mass is not being destroyed. It's just being thrown out of the engine because you cannot create or destroy matter. You can convert it from one form to another, but you can't destroy it. So that mass isn't being destroyed. If you talk about a rocket that has, you know, 20,000 tons of fuel aboard it, That 20,000 tons of fuel gets turned into 20,000 tons of high-pressured gas during the process of being shot out of the engine. So burning fuel means you're ejecting mass through the rocket engine, so the rocket's mass decreases throughout the engine burn, and that affects the equations. And if you want that rocket to actually carry something into space, the payload's mass has to be taken into account along with the rocket and the fuel. Sometimes that can seem like it's negligible, but it's still really important. So getting a payload into space is a matter of determining how much force you will need to escape Earth's gravity, how large your rocket will need to be to do that, how much fuel you're going to need to move that rocket, which in turn might mean that you have to make changes to how big the rocket is. And as this continues, you can easily see it get away from you, right? You could say, well, to move something of this mass, I'm going to need X amount of fuel. But if I have X amount of fuel, that's too much fuel for this rocket. So the rocket's going to have to be bigger. But if the rocket's bigger, then the mass is greater, which means I'm actually going to need more fuel than what I thought before. And that can quickly run away from you. So that's another complication. Any change to the design of the rocket or the payload is going to affect the amount of fuel you're going to need to use. And of course, when you add more fuel, you add more mass. So it's really slippery slope. When you burn the fuel, you create this high pressure gas and releasing that gas in a specific direction provides the thrust to push a rocket. The weight of fuel you burn is equal to the weight of the gas that is generated. So if you burn a ton of fuel, you have created a ton of high pressure gas. The burning process is what actually accelerates the mass with the release through the nozzle that provides thrust. And the nozzle uh, also can increase the the acceleration or It accelerates, rather. I shouldn't say increases the acceleration. It accelerates the mass further. And uh, by this incredible acceleration multiplied by the mass of the uh, high-pressure gas that you're shooting out of this rocket engine, that's what creates the force that allows a rocket to lift off the ground. And we measure thrust in either Newtons, as I mentioned earlier, or in the good old US of A, because we obviously refuse to do things the way the rest of the world does it. We refer to it as pounds of thrust. One pound of thrust is equal to 4.45 newtons of thrust. And one pound of thrust is what would take to keep a one-pound object stationary against the force of gravity on Earth. One newton is the amount of force necessary to make one mass of one kilogram accelerate at a rate of one meter per second squared. This means on Earth, a mass of one kilogram pushes against whatever it is resting on with a force of 9.8 newtons on average. So if you have a kilogram weight on a table, that kilogram is effectively pushing against the table with 9.8 newtons of force. The table is pushing back with 9.8 newtons of force, equal and opposite. And the reason why it's 9.8 newtons is because Earth's gravity, at least at mean sea level, uh, is 9.8 meters per second squared. To get space, to get up to space, you have to travel fast enough to break free of the gravitational force of the Earth. We actually figured out exactly what speed we need to do that. So that speed would be 11 kilometers per second or seven miles per second. You got to get at at to that speed in order to break through and escape Earth's gravity. On March 16th, 1926, Robert Goddard, whom I also mentioned in that earlier episode, created a rocket that used liquid oxygen and gasoline as propellant. Uh, liquid oxygen was used as the oxidizer. He also got to work developing multi-stage rockets. And liquid fuel rockets, this was a big deal. It was the first liquid fuel rockets. Uh, they're very important. But up until Goddard, no one had figured out how to do them. They had been using solid fuel rockets, like the gunpowder rockets that the Chinese had created way back in the Song Dynasty. Uh, Solid fuel rockets burn quickly. And if they're designed properly, they do not explode. It's easier said than done. It um, requires finding the right mixture of components so that you can have a rapid but controlled burn. An uncontrolled burn turns into an explosion. So typically, solid fuel rockets have a hole kind of down the center. Think of, think of a solid fuel rocket, uh, think of it as taking the case of the rocket off, and you have a, a solid cylinder of fuel. Down the center of that cylinder is a tube or a hole, and you ignite the fuel in the center of this tube, and it burns from the center out toward the edge where it's making contact with the casing of the rocket, and then the fuel is spent. The thing about it is, once you ignite a solid fuel rocket, it burns until all the fuel's gone. There's no stopping the engine once you start. Liquid rockets, however, offer up more control. You can actually turn on or turn off the burn process so you can control the rocket engine that way, but they also come with other challenges. So to burn stuff, you need three things. We all remember the triangle, right? You need heat, you need fuel, and you need an oxidizer. And here on Earth, we tend to just rely on oxygen, right? That's our oxidizer. Uh, We also don't have to do anything special with it if we're on the surface of the planet. But in liquid rocket design, you need to have an oxidizer incorporated into the design of the propulsion system in order to create an environment in which fuel can actually burn. You cannot burn fuel without an oxidizer. Liquid oxygen is a frequent oxidizer, or at least in the early rockets, it was frequently used. And that's what Goddard did. The oxidizer and fuel end up being pumped into a combustion chamber. And it's mixed there, so you get a a fine mix of oxidizer and fuel, which can then be ignited. That ends up burning off and creating this high-pressure gas that uh, then can be directed through a nozzle to create the thrust. The combustion chamber in the nozzle can get really, really hot, like hot enough to break down if the heat goes unchecked. So typically, a liquid-fueled rocket design will include either the oxidizer or the fuel Uh, as a super cold cryogenic liquid like liquid oxygen obviously has to be a cryogenic liquid or liquid hydrogen has to be a cryogenic liquid you have to get them at very very cold temperatures in order to keep that stuff in liquid form typically those cryogenic liquids would pass through lines that are adjacent to the combustion chamber and nozzle and transfer heat away from those parts of the rocket engine And the pumps that provide the oxidizer and the fuel to the combustion chamber have to be incredibly strong because inside that combustion chamber, you're generating that high-pressured gas. If the pumps are not strong enough to overcome that high pressure, then the gas is going to go up those pump lines instead of out the nozzle, or they'll go up the pump lines and out the nozzle, and you don't want that. So you have to have very, very strong pumps in a liquid fuel rocket, which is why Uh, It's a complicated process. It's a complicated technology, and it's why it took a good long time for someone to develop one that could actually work. Even Goddard's uh, demonstration was pretty modest. And if you saw the launch today and you just watched as it happened, you'd think, well, what's the big deal? It didn't even go that high. It went a few meters up in the air and then came right back down. But when you understand the technology behind it, how complicated it was, uh, it was very impressive. Most importantly, you can control the burn of a liquid-fueled rocket because you can stop the flow of oxidizer and fuel into the combustion engine. You can turn the pumps off. And once there's nothing to burn, the engine's off. It's not going to create any more thrust. And then you could start it back up again when you needed to. So you it wasn't an all or nothing the way a solid fuel rocket would be. Solid fuel was much more simple, but... It was more limited. So liquid fuel is the way a lot, um, pretty much all the propulsion systems of all the spacecraft had to be liquid fueled. Uh, they, There were several spacecraft that would also depend on solid fuel for some stage or another. Maybe it was like a, a retro rocket or a braking rocket or something like that, or, or sometimes solid fuel booster rockets to get up into space. But when it came to fine tuning, we're talking about liquid fueled rockets. Well, I've got a lot more to say about rockets.
4: but We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic.
2: Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called
4: survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. From iHeart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: With SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at Concur.com. That's c-o-n-c-u-r.com.
3: I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but...
1: Same old us. Oh, yeah.
3: and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.
1: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
0: Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene was wooden.
1: Much of the joy you will find on the road. Comes from the person you share it with.
0: So you ride the books, Gene. And on the business. I understand now. Is a wise man. Is a wise woman.
1: But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get out! I'm not stupid,
3: Gene. Something is going on and it's high time you tell me the truth.
1: Freeze Americano! Gene! Huh? Oh! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the
0: iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the 1940s, German engineer Werner von Braun who would later be brought over to the United States under Operation Paperclip, worked on developing the V-2 rocket for Germany. And those rockets used a mixture of oxygen and alcohol for propellant. They consumed fuel at a rate of one ton of fuel every seven seconds. So that tells you how much mass is being thrown out by this rocket engine. It's a lot. A ton of fuel every seven seconds. And this was the first rocket design that could actually cross the Kármán line into space. The Americans would end up taking not just the German scientists and engineers, but also some of the V-2 rockets during Operation Paperclip, and then adapt those rockets for scientific experiments, such as making measurements of the atmosphere at very high altitudes. The 1950s saw the development of ICBMs, also known as Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles. Scary, scary technology. This is where we get into the nuclear arms race and that... Whole assured, uh, mutually assured mass destruction. Where your, you, you, your whole philosophy is: we need to build up our weapons enough so that no one will dare pick on us, and our enemies have their weapons built up in the same way. So that way, we'll always be at peace. Because if we were to launch an attack, everybody would die. And so the only way to win is not to play. Uh, anyway, without ICBMs, we also would not have had the launch vehicles that we used during the space race. So some scientific good came out of this, uh, and uh, a lot of scary military stuff came out of it too. But this is where we started getting into putting stuff into space with satellites like Sputnik or spacecraft like the Mercury capsule. So now I can talk a little bit more about specific rockets. Now, generally speaking, a space rocket tends to have four major components, each of which might have thousands of individual parts to them. You've got the actual casing or structure of the rocket. This is the physical form of the rocket. It's the bit that holds all the other bits in place. And then you've got the propulsion system. That would be the fuel, the rocket engine, all the components necessary for providing thrust. There's a guidance system because you want the rocket to go where you want it to go. So you have to have some way of guiding it, of steering it. And there are multiple ways that that has happened throughout the years. So you got to have a guidance system. And then you have the payload. That's whatever the rocket is carrying. Like uh, in these cases, we're talking about satellites or spacecraft. Obviously, in military applications, you, you might be talking about a, a satellite, but you're probably talking about some sort of warhead. And most rockets contain at least two stages, with each stage having its own guidance system and propulsion system. The final stage is usually what ends up carrying the payload. The earliest designs for ICBMs, which were intended as weapons of mass destruction that would carry a nuclear weapon, uh, were sort of the brainchild, again, of Werner von Braun. He was working on a design in Germany during World War II. It was designated the A-9-10. The U.S. and the Soviet Union Both rushed to develop ICBMs in the wake of World War II. That was at the beginning of the Cold War between the two countries. The Soviets got there first. They built the first ICBM. It was a two-stage missile, and it was called the R-7. It was 112 feet, or 34 meters, long and measured 9.9 feet, or 3.02 meters in diameter. It used liquid oxygen as the oxidizer in those early, early ones, and kerosene was the fuel in the early ones. It weighed 280 metric tons. The first stage of the rocket consisted of four strap-on rocket boosters around a central rocket engine. Uh, The central engine would continue providing thrust through both stages of the rocket. The R-7 demonstrated that the Soviet Union could launch a missile at targets on the other side of the world, and the Soviets used modified versions of the R-7 for Sputnik, uh, for the Vostok spacecraft for Voskhod, and for the early Soyuz launches. About half of the launches used uh, using the early R 7 launch vehicles suffered failures. It was notoriously unreliable early, early on in its design. And that prompted the Soviet engineers to revisit that design and make changes to improve reliability. But the R 7 would continue to the point where today the Soviets are using launch vehicles that are based off that same design. Even the Soyuz rockets that we use are relying upon those types of uh, uh, launch vehicles. They're still part of that R-7 family. Uh, So some of the variants also include the option of a third stage of the rocket. That was one of the things that was planned when the Soviets were thinking about going to the moon. Over in the United States, the Atlas rocket would become the first American ICBM. The first successful demonstration of an Atlas rocket took place a little more than a year after the Russians had launched Sputnik into orbit. And the Atlas, like the R-7, had a notorious reputation for malfunctions and launch failures, though General Dynamics and Corvair, the companies that were building the missile, worked very hard to solve those design problems. Uh, But it was a particularly complicated rocket design, liquid-fueled rocket, and it was really complex. And that created multiple points for potential failure. So all that stuff had to be worked out. The Atlas LV-3B, or Atlas-D, became the launch vehicle for the last four manned Mercury project missions. The failure rate created real concern, but the Atlas was literally the only vehicle that the United States had access to that would be capable of putting a payload into orbit. Atlas had what was referred to as a -a stage-and-a-half design, uh, with a first stage that was bolstered by a a booster rocket. Now, the first three manned Mercury missions, what did they use? I mean... If the last four used the uh, Atlas D, um, what did the, uh, actually, I guess the first two Mercury missions, there were only six manned Mercury missions, what did they rely on? Well, they relied on a rocket called the Redstone. That was uh, the first American space booster. But the Redstone did not have enough fuel capacity or thrust capability to put a payload into orbit. It could only do suborbital flights. So while the Redstone was the first space booster for a manned mission, uh, it was not capable of putting anyone into orbit. For the Gemini missions, NASA would end up using the Titan II GLV. That was their launch vehicle of choice. The Titan II was a second-generation ICBM, And it was a two-stage liquid fuel rocket that used nitrogen tetroxide as an oxidizer. I mentioned that earlier. And Aerozyne 50 as a fuel. And it was a simpler design than the Atlas, which made it a little more reliable. There were fewer things that could go wrong. The Apollo program would rely on two variants of a launch vehicle called the Saturn, The Saturn 1B, or IB if you prefer, (laughs) that's the 1B, for all Apollo missions up to and including Apollo 7. Uh, Then, starting with Apollo 8, they switched to the Saturn 5. Uh, So Apollo 8 to Apollo 17 used the Saturn 5 launch vehicle. The Saturn 1 was the first heavy lift spacecraft launch vehicle in the United States. And while NASA was originally going to use it for the early Apollo missions, The organization ultimately decided that the cuts they would need to make in payload weight in order to make this work weren't worth the effort. So instead, they decided that they would use the upgraded Saturn 1B instead. Uh, It was a two-stage rocket with the second stage called the S-4B, which I talked about in previous episodes. A modified version of the S-4B would become the third stage for the Saturn V. The Saturn V was capable of sending a fueled CSM Command Service Module, and LM, or Lunar Module, to the moon. The S-4B would provide the thrust needed to go from an Earth orbit into a translunar injection. So the Saturn V was uh, the only vehicle that the U.S. had that would have that capability of actually getting someone to the moon. The Soviet counterpart to the Saturn V was not an R-7 variant. It was a launch vehicle called the N-1 it was a super heavy lift launch vehicle, and it had three stages. The Soviets wanted the N1 to deliver cosmonauts to the moon during the space race. So this was going to be the launch vehicle that would put cosmonauts to the moon, hopefully beating the Americans in the process. The development of the N1 started several years after the Saturn V development process had already begun. So the Americans were already ahead on rocket design. So the Soviets are behind. As a result, there was a ton of political pressure to rush through the design and production of the launch vehicle. And there was a lack of funding to do it, too. So it was the worst of all worlds. Uh, This ended up including a design for the most powerful first-stage rocket ever constructed. The designer of the N1 was Sergei Korolev, but he died during a surgical procedure in 1966, which was kind of in the middle of the process of developing the N1. That caused further problems in that whole development process, obviously. There were only four test launches held for the N1, and every single one of those test launches resulted in failure. The second one resulted in a launch pad explosion so spectacular it entered the history books as the ninth largest non-nuclear man-made explosion. It was equal to the detonation of a kiloton of TNT. So the project was scrapped. Uh, no one outside the Soviet Union would even learn about this until the Soviet Union itself collapsed. It was finally revealed in the late 1980s after the Soviet Union had collapsed. So for, for more than a decade, more than two decades, The United States had no idea that this was going on over at the Soviet Union, or at least very little uh, confirmed idea of it. The space shuttle program, which I'm going to talk about in our next episode, had its own launch vehicle. One of the interesting things about that vehicle is that the space shuttle would be attached to an external tank, and also attached to this external tank were a pair of solid fuel rocket boosters. And those boosters could be recovered and reused. The external tank could not be reused. So it was not designed to be recovered. The tank was essentially just a fuel tank. So the shuttle itself had three main engines. And the external tank would provide fuel to those three main engines. Those engines would ignite at liftoff. And the two solid fuel rocket boosters would ignite at liftoff. Once the solid fuel rocket boosters had burned through, they would... Jettison from the external tank, fall back to Earth, and get recovered for reuse. And then the space shuttle would eventually jettison the external tank as it was heading up toward orbit. The external tank would not be reused. But I'll talk more about the space shuttle in our next episode, and I'll also use that time to talk a little bit about the private launch vehicles that were created by SpaceX. I was going to do it in this episode, but these shows are running kind of long because I get Gabby about. All right, let's be honest. I get Gabby about everything. But I I get particularly Gabby about space stuff. And I know that's the case. So we're going to save that SpaceX discussion for the end of the next episode. That's when we'll talk about the space shuttle program. That will be the conclusion of the space block of content. And then we'll switch gears or will change navigation to go to some new destination. If you guys have suggestions for what I should talk about in upcoming episodes of Tech Stuff, send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle of both of those is HSW. Don't forget, we have a brand new merchandise store tpublic.com/textoff. That's t e stuff. You can go check it out. We have a whole bunch of different designs up there for various products. Uh, we've got the iHeart Tech. If you want to be like me, where I start with every every podcast with I love all things tech, get yourself an iHeart Tech T-shirt. Everything you purchase. A little portion of that ends up going to the show, so you end up supporting the show, but you also get something cool in return. So I'm not asking for any donations or anything. I'm saying if you've ever wanted a Tech Stuff t-shirt, go check it out and just know that if you buy one, not only do you get a really cool t-shirt or sticker or phone case or whatever, you also end up throwing a couple of bucks the way of Tech Stuff, helping us keep our show going. I really appreciate it. And also, hey, before I leave, don't forget go follow us on Instagram. Crystal, our our social media manager, is really on my case about that. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For
2: more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Take control of your business finances today at Concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring
1: every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines.
0: With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat call quitgranger.com or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done
1: hi i'm michael rapaport and i'm Kibi rapaport and together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's reality, reality podcast. podcast we have a passion for reality tv and we're inviting you into our living room we're dissecting the drama and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today that is right Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. It's brand new,
2: season two.